Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo, or to play on a portable player, such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions, or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This program, entitled Flesh and Blood, A Study of the Incarnate Word, was presented by Dr. William Marshner, Professor of Theology at Christendom College at St. Leo the Great Catholic Church in Fairfax, Virginia, in January 2010. This is part two of a three-part series. You'll notice that the audio quality changes about halfway through when the power for the entire building failed and we had to switch to a backup recorder. But we hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are very blessed to have with us today Father Jarrett Conradi, um, who is the Director of Vocations from Salina, Kansas, uh, who is here. So uh, please welcome Father to open us in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we pause as we recognize the amazing gift of life. We are so beautifully and wonderfully made, and we thank you for your many gifts, those gifts that perhaps we can often take for granted. Lord, we thank you, especially as we gather on this Saturday honoring our Blessed Mother. We thank you for the gift of the richness of our faith, of the history of our faith, and the blessing of the faith which leads us daily closer to you. We pray for your Spirit to be upon us this day, upon those who would speak, but upon our hearts that they may be open to your word. Lord, we pray in thanksgiving for your many blessings. We pray for that spirit upon us as we ask all of these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. How many of you made the March for Life yesterday? I imagine there's a few people missing today that are too sore to get out of bed. Please welcome back our wonderful speaker, Dr. William Marshner. I want to emphasize today a different theme from what I did last week. Last week I was mostly emphasizing the full confession of our Lord's divinity already in the oldest of the New Testament literature. This was not some later development. This is original. This week I want to get into the relations in which we stand to our Lord Jesus Christ because He is flesh and blood as well as divine. This is the main theme of theology in St. Paul. Paul's letters organize everything around Christ, the Son, Christ appearing in time, Christ suffering, dying, raised, living in heaven for the sake of us whom he calls. He calls us to what? To union with his suffering and death, 
so that we may also have a share in his resurrection and in the life of glory. In studying St. Paul's Christology, you cannot separate Christ from those whom he came to redeem, that's you and me, whom he came to make joint heirs with himself. Why can't you separate them? Because God elected us and predestinated us in Christ. Before we were born, we were predestined in Christ, according to the epistle to the Ephesians. In Christ, he has reconciled, God has reconciled the world. In him we're born to grace. In him also we shall be quickened, resurrected, and glorified. So, there are two functions here. At once, mediatory and sovereign, which the glorified Christ exercises over us, the members of his mystical body. Two relations, mediatory and sovereign. So the true starting points to understand the theology of St. Paul, the true starting points, uh, it's not the cross, important as that is. The true starting point is not justification, important as that is. But the true starting point is the doctrine of our death and resurrection in Jesus through baptism. Our death and resurrection in Jesus through baptism. A doctrine which finds fuller expression in the doctrine of the body of the church, in which the faithful are members of Jesus Christ, the head. The headship relation is the sovereignty. The work that he does to bring us grace, and now that he's glorified in heaven to intercede for us, that's the mediation, the mediatory relation. Well, this is all very nice, but why don't we see it in black and white? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses, uh, well, begin with verse 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. One body and one spirit, as you are called in one hope of your calling. One body and one spirit, as you are called to one hope. Now let's look at verses 11 to 16. He descended... And he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, others to be pastors and doctors for the building up of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up, that's that funny word edifying, building up the body of Christ until we all meet into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God being built up into a complete man unto the measure 
of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may be from henceforth no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. But doing the truth in charity, we may in all things grow up in him, in him who is the head. Okay? There it is in Ephesians chapter 4. You've got it again in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. And you've got it again in the epistle to the Colossians. This is where you start from if you want to understand the divine sonship of Jesus as the source and model of our own adoptive sonship. Okay. What is salvation all about? That we become adopted children of God. Okay. Christ in his divinity is the source of that and the model of that sonship that he came to give us. I'm looking at Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. Everybody has to know this one from Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. Okay? Context says, well, we used to be kids. We used to be children. We were serving in bondage to the elements of this world. But then what? Verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. To do what? To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive what? The adoption of sons. There it is. This is St. Paul's short Summary of the gospel. This is what it's about. This is what the coming of Christ was about. Okay? When the fullness of time had come, notice the importance of the real flesh and blood. When the fullness of time has come, he is sent by God. Sent how? Born of a woman except... That's not quite what the Greek says, okay? It's, it's a funny uh, expression. If I got chalk, I got chalk. Hang on. Phenomenon ek gynaikos. Gynaikos is a woman, okay? Genitive case. Preposition from a woman. The funny thing here is this participle. This is not how you say somebody was born in Greek. That's gnao, it's a different verb. This is how you say somebody became or was made. Okay. What happened uniquely in the case of our Lord when he was made to be from a woman is not that he began existing the way we do when we're conceived and born, but that he was made man. Hmm? He was made man. Genomenon ek gynaikos. Made of a woman, made under the law. 
Then comes the purpose. To redeem us and the purpose of the redemption so that we might receive the adoption of sons. There it is. Because he has taken our integral nature, his sonship can be the model as well as the source of our sonship. So the whole supernatural order of which Christ is the center is summarized for Paul in a few words. Quote, everything is yours, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 22 to 23. Okay? Because we were predestinated in him, then when sin comes, he himself is the one who has to come. Comes as a new head of the human race to restore the design of God. Okay? If we had not been predestinated in Christ, then when Adam sinned and our race fell, maybe God would have said, well, man was a pretty good idea, but it's screwed up, so eh, let it go. But no, God had a destiny in mind for the human race. Okay? And because that destiny was unalterable in his will. When Adam's fall estranged us from him, there was nothing to do but send the one in whom, I-N, in whom, we had been predestined. So, the eternal son comes. When he comes, he is the Son of God, but he doesn't come as the Son of God. Think of that. If he were coming as the Son of God, well, for heaven's sake, he would have come in a blaze of glory. Okay? He would have come with um, thunderbolts, knockout power. But he didn't come as the Son of God. Oh, he was the Son of God. Rather, he came as... St. Paul, this is the key thing, he came as the second Adam. The second Adam. To restore the design of God. To deal with the problem of sin that Adam had brought into the world. God, you know, is full of surprises. Um, For uh, how many hundred years? Eight, nine hundred years? The Jews had been looking for a Messiah. Yep. Beginning with prophecies in, in Isaiah. Ah, seven, eight hundred years. The Jews had been looking for a Messiah. What was the Messiah supposed to do? He was supposed to fix David's problem. What was David's problem? He didn't have an heir anymore to sit on his throne. Yeah. The covenant with David said, one of your descendants is going to sit on this throne forever and ever, amen. Well, David runs out of heirs. At least enthroned heirs. The monarchy is in trouble. Oftentimes abolished. Israel's conquered. There's no son of David to sit on the throne. Saul, vivant one, vinit one, vivet for Messiah. 
Come on already. But when the Messiah comes, he doesn't come to fix David's problem. Ooh, this is a surprise. He doesn't come to fix David's problem. He doesn't come to fix Israel's problem among the nations. Because, you know, without a son of David on the throne, why, you know, politics goes bad and other countries get aggressive and ain't vault. No. He comes to fix Adam's problem. Okay. And this is what St. Paul has seen. New Adam is a far deeper title than Messiah. Don't get me wrong, both titles are true. Okay? He has status to act for Israel because of his dynastic connection to David. But it turns out he didn't come to act for the dynasty. He came to fix the oldest and biggest problem of all, namely the problem of sin. And if you think about it, it isn't hard to see that something needed to be done. Uh, people often wonder, non-Christians often wonder, well, what, yeah, what sin? I mean, come on, what's the big problem? Uh, all right, suppose I commit some sins. Yeah, it's no skin off God's nose. What's he so bent out of shape about? Well, it's true, God is invulnerable. Our sins don't in any literal way injure him. Okay? But in some profound sense, they do disappoint his love. And the reason sin is bad news and dangerous and needs to be fixed for heaven's sake is not because it hurts God, but because it hurts us. Okay? Fallen man has become so dangerous to his fellow man that time after time throughout history, a despot's heel has been kissed, lest we be at the mercy of our neighbors. Law, order have to be established because without them we are not only unruly, we're darn dangerous to one another. You know? We're like a bunch of kids who've been given war toys to play with, except the toys are real. We really kill one another. Okay? And the Old Testament arrangements did not fix the problem of sin. What do you mean they didn't fix the problem? God uh, revealed all these sacrifices and so on to be done, and that would take away sin and so on. Yeah. Okay. First of all, the Old Testament schedule of sacrifices took care of removing sin, once repented, in Israel. Because the Jews had the sacrifices. They could get some relief. From sin. The sacrifices were no benefit to us if we're Gentiles. No benefit at all. Moreover, the sacrifices were of limited 
value even among the Jews. Because although the law made clear what was and was not sin, so that we could know with killing clarity when we were doing wrong, yeah, still the law did nothing to correct the rotten orientation of the heart. Nothing. Okay. The sacrifices are there to take away sin, but nothing takes away the motive to commit more. I like the supply side analogy. Thanks to the motivational problem, which is unfixed, the supply of sin in Israel never diminishes. You get a bunch of people forgiven through sacrifices, that's one bunch of sins gone. Guess what? Another crop springs up. Yes. So the supply of sin never diminishes in Israel. The law does not solve the problem. And so God sends his son as a new Adam to fix Adam's problem to end forever the problem of sin. We'll be talking about that more in a minute. Let me talk now about the earthly Jesus, the historical Christ, in the vision of St. Paul. This is very interesting. Paul never met Jesus in the flesh. Never met him. Okay? He had that vision that knocked him off his horse. Okay? But, uh, you know, that wasn't like shaking hands. Paul never experienced the bodily reality of Jesus. And yet... St. Paul never imagined that Jesus was a spirit or a ghost or uh, an apparition. Rather, he speaks all the time of the man, Christ Jesus. You want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Where's Timothy? Come on, Timothy. That's Titus. Here he is. First Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, himself a man, Christ Jesus. One mediator, and that mediator, a man. Not a ghost, not a spirit, a man, Christ Jesus. Remember I told you last week about um, odd sections of the text in the Greek New Testament where all of a sudden the definite article disappears? Hmm? This is another one. Just for fun this morning, 
I took that verse and translated it back into Aramaic. Okay. Well, I had some help. <laughs> but anyway, when you translate it back into Aramaic, you see there are no definite articles there. And so in Greek, it reads funny. There's one God and one mediator of gold and men. Not between God and people or the human race, but God and man. Comma. Man, Christ Jesus. Doesn't say the man. Okay? Which Greek idiom would have wanted. So this again is a statement from an Aramaic original and emphasizes the fact that Paul gets his Christology from the original apostles who knew the fullness of our Lord's bodily human nature. And then this becomes crucial to St. Paul's theory of redemption. That theory. Isn't it terrible how biblical scholars talk? You shouldn't read these guys. I shouldn't read these guys. It affects my own vocabulary. St. Paul doesn't have any theories for crying out loud. He's had this revealed to him by God. He's speaking with the power of the Holy Spirit. Theories. I'm sorry, I said it. I repent it. But now, listen to this. Through a man, death came. And through a man came resurrection from the dead. There it is. Through a man came death. Well, there's no question about the bodily character of Adam. And through a man, the second man, the heavenly man, came resurrection of the dead. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. If you never have time to um, make, um, I don't know, a detailed study of more than one chapter in the New Testament... I would suggest that you devote your study to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's fantastic. Not only is St. Paul's account of redemption in there, but also his brilliant defense of the resurrection against, now this is 1 Corinthians, remember, so this is written in the year 51, against people who were already tending to Gnosticism. How do we know that? They had an objection that St. Paul had to answer in 1 Corinthians 15. The objection was, you're telling me, Paul, you're telling me that at the end of this whole redemptive business, I'm going to get this body back? I got lumbago? I got hangnails? I got bad teeth? Why do I want this back? I thought redemption should be a liberation from the body and all of its aches and pains and temptations and everything else. 
But what are you telling us here? And of course, St. Paul said, look, friends, look. First of all, um, our bodies really have been saved. Don't forget that. But next, there's more than one kind of body. Come on. Okay. There's the body which is a seed. How much does it resemble the body which is the plant? Okay. There are earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. They're very different. We're not going to come back in the same kind of body we have now. No, you're not going to have hangnails in heaven. Don't worry about it. Okay. Well, it's a long argument. It's an interesting argument. It's at once uh, theological and philosophical. So if you want to see St. Paul really doing the job of a defender of the faith and an apostle, I recommend 1 Corinthians 15. It is a, uh, as we say in the book business, it's a good read. In Romans 8.3, Romans 8.3, Paul says, Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning that his flesh was indistinguishable from ours. Qua flesh, the only difference was his wasn't involved in sin either by his own doing or by inheritance from Adam. So, we all live in sinful flesh. He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. Same kind of flesh we got, but without the sin. That's what that part means. Okay? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he might do something in the flesh. Condemn sin. Okay? Put an end to sin in the flesh. And this point again emphasizes the importance of his real body. Okay? And um, you mind, I've been quoting Paul for a long time. I think it's important to quote Peter once in a while. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, his epistles are not nearly so so big and famous, but um, can you find First Peter? It's right after James, and I'm looking at chapter 1. You got this big uh, greeting here. Peter, an apostle, to the strangers dispersed through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all of you elect chosen ones according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect for what? For sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter emphasizes the blood. More than St. Paul does. Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. End of greeting says, well, you're, you're, you're that crowd, grace to you in peace. 
So we are the blood-sprinkled ones. And a couple of verses later, he says, you should know. This is verse 18. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver from your vain behavior in the tradition of your fathers. No. Verse 19, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb unspotted and undefiled, foreknown indeed before the foundation of the world, but manifested in the last times for you. This Christ, foreknown from the beginning, eternally preexistent with the Father, and foreknown to become incarnate one day, that one is manifested in these last days so that we might be redeemed through his blood. You see how worthless Gnosticism is? If, he, if his body were not real, his blood wouldn't be real. If his blood weren't real, we couldn't be washed clean by it. And if that real blood were not the blood of God, it would not be all that precious, and it would certainly be corruptible. I don't know about your blood, but I think mine's going to spoil pretty quick. Okay. But the blood of God is incorruptible. So you're not redeemed with corruptible stuff like silver and gold. That was the original idea of redemption. Somebody gets in debt. They go into debtor's prison, they're captive, and a redeemer comes and buys them out. Redeemed with silver and gold, that was the usual story. But our problem is not financial debt, was it? Our problem was a moral debt. We did not give God the obedience and the glory that were due to him. Hmm. And so, that debt had to be paid. That's why Christ is called a redeemer. But it's not paid with money. It's paid with blood. Okay. I saw a sign back there a moment ago which said that I had only five minutes left. <laughs> and um, before I get into my next, uh, next topic, I don't really see why I should totally exhaust those five minutes when you could use them just as well as I can. Rise up, exercise, drink coffee, have a nibble, and I'll see you back in 10 or 15 minutes, right? So uh, we're going to take a five to seven minute break, oh. not 10 to 15 minutes, because otherwise we're going to be out of time. I think the nicest airport in the country is the one in um, Milwaukee. They have a terrific used bookstore right there in the airport, so it's great. But anyway, what, uh, the other thing that makes it nice is they have an, an area set aside. After you go through the, the security line... Uh, and you have to take your shoes off and belts and all that stuff, to have a nice area with chairs all around and a sign up saying, 
recombobulation area. I think that is a great touch. Somebody ought to sell that at Dulles. All right. I want to um, spend just a minute talking some more about the sovereignty or the headship relation in St. Paul's um, epistles. And the main thing I want you to look at is the first chapter of Colossians. Okay? In Colossians, first chapter, we get a layout of the twofold primacy or headship of Christ. On the one hand, we get his primacy, primacy over creation. Thanks to his divine nature.
for him, ordered to him. So we're talking about efficient causality. All things were made through him, by him. We're talking about final causality. All things are ordered to him. And we're also talking about a kind of precedence in the order of excellence. He's first before every creature. Through him, every creature was made, and they're all for him. All right? Now then, same chapter. But now we're in verse 18. And we get the parallel discussion. Firstborn from the dead. Firstborn from the dead. What makes him first in the church? Answer, the resurrection. He's the first to come back from the dead. First born from among the dead. First born of the dead. Then we get these prepositions again. In whom we have redemption. Reconciliation. Through whom we have been redeemed. And again, in verse 20, in this order to everything is for him. Ordered to him. So you have twofold primacy. By virtue of his being the eternal image, perfect image of the Father, he's before all creatures. He's the divine wisdom through all things related. But then in the order of grace, the supernatural order, he's the head of the church. And notice, his headship in the supernatural order depends upon his having a real body and real blood to shed. Right? Because if you don't have a body, you can't very well die. And then you can't very well be resurrected. And so he would be firstborn from the dead. So this is absolutely essential to St. Paul's thought. thought you'd like to see both sides of that. There in Colossians 1. Now, I want to turn to a bit of the New Testament, which, well... It may have been written by St. Paul, but nobody knows. It's not exactly his style. It's very close to his thought. It may have been written by somebody who knew him or had traveled with him. Anyway, I'm talking about the Epistle to the Hebrews. The Epistle to the Hebrews. Because I want to show you what this author, or St. Paul in this context, makes of this great point that our Lord is real flesh and real blood. Okay. Uh, what is the context of the epistle to the Hebrews? Oh, it's fascinating. I would say that it is the clearest exercise of apologetics in the canon. It's a book of apologetics. 
It's a long, detailed defense of the Christian way of reading the Old Testament against Jewish rival interpretations. And many of uh, the uh, converts in the first century would have continued, or converts from Judaism, would have continued to be fascinated by the Jewish interpretation. A lot of people in those days, converted from Judaism, missed the temple. They missed the sacrifices. Yeah. They missed that. In their opinion, early Christianity is a little bit thin, liturgically. Well, I mean, if part of your part of your worship is the slaughter of oxen, then yeah, we're a little thin. <laughs> so people uh, missed that. And um, the author of this epistle to the Hebrews is very intent on justifying our hope in the Son and showing that we have uh, a better, uh, a better redemption than anything that had been promised on the Jewish reading of the Old Testament. Okay? A lot of the very beginning of this epistle is a repeat of theological points that we already saw in St. Paul and elsewhere. Remember how it begins, God who at various matters and sundry times in the past spoke to our fathers through the prophets, has spoken to us in these latter days through his son. Yeah, okay. Then what does it say about this son? He's spoken to us in these latter days through his son. Whom he made heir of all things, through whom he created the worlds, the ages, and through whom we have redemption. <coughs> all three stages of Christ's existence are mentioned there. He's become the heir of all things, that's his glorified state. He's the one through whom God made the worlds, the eons, the ages, that's his pre-existence. And we have through him redemption by his blood. That's the historical stage. Now, um, I'm going to skip all of the beautiful vocabulary which uh, this epistle borrows from the ancient wisdom literature to describe our Lord. Well, I'll just say real quick. I can't resist it. Uh, I feel sorry for you if your Bible does not have in it any of the books that were in the Alexandrian canon. They're sometimes called deuterocanonicals. One of them is called The Wisdom of Solomon. Okay? What? Nothing to do with Solomon. But it's a book of wisdom originally composed in Greek um, early in the first century B.C. In fact, earlier than that maybe 2nd century B.C., because the 
people who put together the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, included this book in their canon. Okay? And in chapter 7 of that book of wisdom, Wisdom of Solomon, okay, it says wisdom is the brightness or effulgence of the eternal light and the exact image of God's goodness. Well, that's the very vocabulary that we have here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where we are told that Christ is the apaugasma, uh, the effulgence or brilliance, peace of his glory and the the character the stamped image out the exact image of his substance that language comes directly from the book of wisdom look it up but, I didn't turn to this epistle in order to review all of those splendid titles of our Lord as the incarnate wisdom of God. Rather, I'm interested in the epistle because of what it says about the priesthood of our Lord. <coughs> the primacy is one thing. The sovereignty, that's all one thing. But the mediation, the priesthood, of Christ is what we learn most about in this epistle. The mediation of the prophets, of the angels, of Moses is only mentioned in the letter to the Hebrews in order to manifest more clearly the superiority of the mediation of, quote, the great high priest who has entered into the heavens. Hebrews 4, verse 14. The great high priest who has entered into the heavens. Jesus is priest according to the order of Melchizedek, we're told. And high priest, as Melchizedek was. And as such, he's the antitype of the high priest whom he supplants. I mean Aaron. He recalls Melchizedek, he supplants Aaron, and um, this is the theme in which this letter instructs us on the priesthood of Christ. Christ is called priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, in uh, Hebrews 7, verses 17 and 21. And uh, at that point... Uh, the sacred author is quoting from the Psalms. It's Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You all know Psalm 110? Okay. I, I don't know if you have one of those odd Bibles that has different numbering on the Psalms, but mm -hmm. Psalm 110 is just, is just, you know, it's just great. It's been set to music. I, you know, I'm, I'm strongly tempted to sing some here, but I should. <laughs> but it, it, it's the one that starts out, The Lord said to my Lord, sit down by my right hand, 
till I make thine enemies to be thy footstool. And uh, uh, it's, it's a messianic psalm and uh, calls uh, the Messiah priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And he's over the household of God in chapter 10, verse 21. He's merciful and faithful. He's the high priest of our confession, Hebrews 3, verse 1. The great high priest, high priest able to sympathize with our infirmities. Chapter 4, verse 15. Able to sympathize with our infirmities. And yet, he is a high priest, holy, innocent, without blemish, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Chapter 7, verse 26. Moreover, he's not like ordinary priests of the Old Testament who are priests of present-day goods. Not all sacrifices had to do with getting rid of sin. Some sacrifices had to do with placating God for the good of the crops, the livestock. Well, the Old Testament clergy were priests of present-day goods, but Christ is the high priest, we are told, of future goods. Chapter 9, verse 11. He's called minister of the sanctuary of the true Tabernacle, chapter 8, verse 2. In other words, the temple on earth made by hands is not the true sanctuary. It's only a copy of it. The true sanctuary is with God in heaven. That's where our great high priest has entered in. Now, in order to be a priest, you have to meet certain qualifications. The definition of a priest is given to us in this epistle. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Hebrews 5, 1 to 4. What does it take to be a priest? Number 1. A priest is taken from among men. Number 2. Constituted as representative of men. Number 3. Called by God like Aaron. Number four, called for what? To offer sacrifices for sin. Four characteristics of the priest. Taken from among men. Made a representative of men. Called by God to offer sacrifice for sin. Now then, in explaining each of these tests or characteristics of the true priest, this wonderful epistle to the Hebrews lays out for us. Taken from among men. In other words, the priest has to have the same nature we do. He who sanctifies and those who get sanctified, says chapter 5, are both of one nature or origin. He who sanctifies and those who get sanctified are ex henos, from one. Doesn't exactly give us the noun, but it's easy enough to supply. It's from one ancestry, 
as uh, our Lord, like, uh, like uh, those for whom he died in the Jewish war, or from Abraham, or it's one flesh, or it's one race, or it's one nature. As children have shared the same flesh and blood, so he has shared. In no way did he come to the aid of the angels. Actually, right now I'm in chapter 2, starting with verse 11. He who sanctifies and those who get sanctified are both of a single uh, stock. As children have shared the same flesh and blood, so he has shared ours. In no way did he come to the aid of the angels, but to the aid of the race of Abraham. So he must be like his brothers in all things, so as to be before God a priest. Merciful and faithful to expiate the sins of the people. Okay? Like his brothers in all things, says chapter 2. There in chapter 2, the key verses are 11, 14, and 16 to 17. Repeat that. What? Chapter 2 in Hebrews, verses 11, 14, and then 16 and 17. So, given the divine plan of redemption, <laughs> that God's eternal Son and wisdom is to redeem the lost race of Adam, and redemption requires sacrifice. Given all that, it becomes necessary for the mediator the divine wisdom to become incarnate. So Christ, while exalted above the angels according to his divine nature, chapter 1, verse 13, nevertheless undergoes in his human nature a stage of humiliation, which places him below the angels, chapter 2, verse 7. Now then, he said, the priest has to be like us. Like his breath. Same nature as the one for whom he makes sacrifice. This is important to bear in mind. Okay? Very important to bear in mind. You might think, oh, gee whiz. Incarnation seems like a pretty drastic step. I mean, think of the Old Testament um, when, uh, who was it, Gideon was in trouble. Yeah. God didn't bother to send his son, but God sent an angel. Ah. And the angel comes and appears to Gideon and says, uh, take heart, oh brave Gideon. And he says, I'll show me a sign. And the angel tells him to you know, bring some broth and bread and whatnot. And then the angel goes zap and fire is created and it's all cooked. And Gideon is duly impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why couldn't God the Father just pick an angel? All right, you want an angel of sufficient dignity? You want Gabriel already? <laughs> Raphael already? Somebody big. God sent to earth to uh, make sacrifice for us. Okay? Now, 
do it that way. Because an angel is not of our nature. Priesthood requires sameness of nature. So the body and the blood of our Lord have to be real human body and blood or there is no sacrifice for us. Does everybody see? Now then, in chapter 4, verse 15, our author clarifies what he said earlier, uh, like to his brothers in all things. He clarifies that. And uh, in verse 210, chapter 2, verse 10, he said, it was fitting. It was fitting for Christ to suffer. For whom and through whom all things are. And who brought many sons to glory. To perfect through sufferings the author of their salvation. Okay? So God the Creator did a fitting thing to perfect through suffering the author of our salvation. It was in order to deliver us from sin and the fear of death that Jesus freely underwent death. Chapter 2, verse 15. By taking on our miseries and infirmities, he put himself in a better position to know our needs and our weaknesses, to understand our temptations, to sympathize with us in that perfect temperament which knows how to avoid the excesses of indulgence and the excesses of rigor. So, there is a limit, however, on how like us he can be. He's like us in all things except sin. This is chapter 4, verse 15. You knew I'd get there eventually. Christ did not know the blemish of sin. And the reason for this, the reason why it had to be so, there are many reasons. But for purposes of the theology of redemption, the purpose is explained to us in chapter 7, verse 27. Okay? The priest who offers sacrifice for the sins of others must not have sins of his own. Otherwise, there will have to be another priest to atone for the sins of the first one. And then if the second priest is also a man with sins, there's going to have to be a third priest to make sacrifice for the second guy. And then a fourth one for that guy. And then a fifth one for that guy. And so on and so on and so on ad infinitum. You're facing an infinite regress. In other words, the problem of sin could not be solved definitively unless the priest offering the sacrifice has no sin of his own for which to atone. And that is why he is like us in all things except sin. A priest has to be made a representative of men. He's established for man in things pertaining to the worship of God, chapter 5, verse 1. 
It's a matter of social worship. What's due to God in this fallen and sinful state of our nature. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, the more perfect alliance, we're told in 9.15. Why? Because after people have sinned, he has acquired an eternal redemption for us by sacrificing himself in his own blood. Chapter 9, verse 12. Okay? And now i got about 15 more verses here. I don't want you to run out of it. But it's all through. This is why we can repair to him with confidence. Chapter 4, verse 16. For all those who obey him, he has become the cause of their eternal salvation. Chapter 5, verse 9. He's entered into heaven as a precursor for us. Chapter 7, verse 26. And he can save... Why is this redemption eternal? Because he can save perpetually those who are brought near to God by his initiative. Why can he do this perpetually? Because he is ever living to make intercession for us. Chapter 7, <coughs> verse 25. The priesthood of Aaron is insufficient. The Aaronic priest died and had to be replaced generation after generation. But here, there is one priest forever because he holds on to the flesh in which and by which he made the sacrifice. He holds on to that flesh not by some juridical appointment. Hello there, you're a descendant of Aaron. You, you, you get in here, you have a job. Not by some juridical appointment, but by the power of an indissoluble life. So the epistle says. He can act forever on our behalf, and what he does lasts forever because he retains the body in which he sacrificed himself forever by the power of an indissoluble life. So he was called by God. He made sacrifice according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, yeah, here we go. The indissoluble life, that's chapter 7, verse 16. You should know that. Chapter 7, verse 16. Now, this tells us something important. If he is a priest forever because of the power of an indissoluble life, we learn something important about what consecrated our Lord to be a priest. Aaron's descendants were consecrated with oil. But our Lord is consecrated by the outpouring of the divine person upon his sacred humanity. Where does this body and this blood get an indissoluble life? It gets that life by being taken up by the eternal Son of God. 
It will never be laid down. It has been taken up by one who cannot die. Intrinsically eternal. He has taken up the flesh and done with it all that needed to be done for our salvation. All we need to do is get close to it. Close to that sacrifice. Close to that body. Close to that blood. Get close to his blood in the sacrament of confession. Ask God that your life, your sins, may pass under the blood of Christ. And get close to that body in the Holy Eucharist that you may have what Ignatius of Antioch called the antidote to death. If he has the power of an indissoluble life, then his body is the antidote to death. It is the medicine of immortality. So said Ignatius of Antioch in a letter written, what, in 1530? In 850? No. 107.80. The medicine of immortality, the antidote to death. Well, I certainly hope that none of you die between now and next week. <laughs> I would like to see you all back here for my third and closing lecture in this series when I'm finally going to go uh, beyond uh, the biblical presentation and give you a whirlwind tour of the early Christian heresies about our Lord and take you to the heart of the solution that was eventually found to a major puzzle. How to avoid all those heresies, the solution was eventually found. Gets a little technical, it'll get a little philosophical. Nevertheless, I think you'll like it. And I will see you all, God willing, next week. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. For more information, recorded programs, or schedules of upcoming events, visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org.